As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 25. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to walk from the front here towards the back. You can just slip your hand up in the air, and we would love to get a copy of God's Word into your hands today. And if you don't own a copy, just keep this. It's our gift to you today. I, I, uh, I do want to say a happy Thanksgiving weekend. I trust that it's, it's going well so far. And uh, I, I trust that maybe you've already had a chance to either to spend some time with family, enjoying some food and some fellowship, and maybe just even just reflecting a little bit on what you're thankful for. Uh, maybe you're like me and you're going you're gonna to get together with some family today and you're going to eat a lot of food and probably fall asleep really early. Uh, and uh, maybe tomorrow, I'm getting with my family uh, tomorrow as well, and so I, I just trust that it's just a, a weekend that's full of thankfulness and gratitude to the Lord. I was reflecting a little bit, just especially in light of this weekend, on, on just the nature of family. And family is a really precious gift from the Lord. We've seen that already in this a parent-child dedication. It was a really fitting, fitting kind of moment in our service as we even just right now process what it means to be a part of a family. I wonder if you just think about your family. Um, every family has a story, has a, a family history. A story that you can kind of trace back and think through. Maybe you don't know your family history very well. Maybe it's not that significant to you. But for a lot of people, their family story, their family legacy, their family name, it has significant meaning and importance to their lives. You see, a family story often helps people understand who they are and how they got here. It speaks to their identity It speaks to the kind of people they are, what they prize, what they cherish, how they think of themselves. And as in light of all of that, as a result of all of that, it it speaks to how they now live, how they carry on that family legacy or tradition. Every one of us has a kind of origin story. I don't know if you're familiar with that concept of origin stories, but most of our favorite stories or most of our favorite characters in stories, they'll often be painted with a kind of origin story, right? A background, a backdrop that helps to inform you a little bit about who they are. I mean, you can just think of the long list of of movies or books that you've read or characters that you like, you know, Star Wars. Luke Skywalker has an origin story. And it has a lot to do with his parents and his background, and it shapes who he is and, and who he becomes. Or, or you can just throw any, anybody else, you know, every, every X-Men has an origin story. Every Avenger, Batman, Spider-Man, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, you can go get volumes of origin stories behind Lord of the Rings. You have an origin story. And that helps you make sense of who you are, how you got here. And this chapter, chapter 25 of Genesis, really is an origin story. It it is a family origin story. And if you're a believer here today, it's actually your family's origin story. And it comes complete with a family tree, a genealogy. It comes with the birth of children, parents playing favorites, and even sibling rivalries. But from top to bottom, it is a family story that is rooted entirely in God's grace. And for the people of God, our family story is a story of grace. And it's a story that God wants you to know, God wants you to embrace, and God wants you to live out of. That's why this passage is, is here in many ways. God wants you to hear today that your family story, your origin story, 
is all about his grace. This story, if we rightly understand it, it actually shapes who we are and how we live. It was intended to do that in the life of Israel, and it's intended to do that for the church of Jesus Christ. And I want to look at this passage really from four angles, maybe in the spirit of Thanksgiving and all of the desserts and sweets we're going to be eating, uh, four layers. It's a four-layered pumpkin spice cake. (laughs) I want to just look at four layers of grace to increase, listen, our love for God, to shape our lives, and in many ways, even today especially, to increase our gratitude. So as we look at this, four layers of grace, first, Give thanks for sovereign grace. God predestined you. I want to just read verses 1 through 18. It's filled with genealogies, but as we'll see, there's a lot of important things going on here. It says this, that Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Ledushim, and Leumim. I noticed none of these names were a part of the parent-child dedication. It would have been acceptable to mess one of those ones up. Right, Adam? The sons of Midian were Ephaph and Epher and Hanok, Abida and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had, this is important here, to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Laheroi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian servant, or Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named to the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Detur, Nefish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael. And these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. I want you just to simply see that as God is painting the story of redemption throughout the book of Genesis, one of the things he wants us to continually pay attention to is that he is sovereign over all that's happening in the world. He is working out his plan in the most particular kinds of ways. We saw that last week with the providence of God in the life of Isaac and Rebecca, and it was a masterful telling of God's sovereign control over all the details of life. And in the context, remember, Sarah has already died. 
Sarah, the, the wife of Abraham, she, she's gone, and so Isaac has got a wife, and the baton is being passed from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah. And so here we see that Abraham has actually remarried. Remember, he, he sent the servant out to find a son for Isaac because he thought he was actually near death. He thought the end of his life was coming. Probably he just thought that Isaac was getting too old and he couldn't live in his basement and play video games anymore. He's 40 years old when he gets married, Isaac is. But here what we see is that he actually lives quite a bit longer. He dies at the age of 175. And he dies his life being fulfilled. That's the sense here. He's, he's lived a good life, a fulfilling life. And, and, and so much of that we've seen is because he's learned to put his faith and trust in the Lord. He's realized that the key to a good life is following God and knowing God, loving God, living for God. But what we see here is that his, his death is bookended by these genealogical lists. And what Moses, the author of Genesis, is doing here is he's demonstrating God's faithfulness to the promise that he had made to Abraham. Remember all the way back in chapter 12. I will covenant with you. I will make a promise to you. Land, offspring, and blessing to the nations. It's all coming through you, Abraham. And so what we're just being reminded here again in a very kind of subtle and literary way that, that the plan of God has not come to an end simply because the life of Abraham has come to an end. God will be faithful to do everything he promised to do. He will bring it to pass. I want to remind you of some of the language that God had, had spoken to Abraham. Listen to the, the emphasis on the person responsible here. He said to Abraham in chapter 13, 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. He told him in chapter 15, verse 5, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. In chapter 17, verse 6, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. And we're seeing here that that promise has been fulfilled in part through the fruitful life of Abraham, through these lists, through his children. We're seeing that certainly nations are forming and coming forth from this man and his wife, Sarah. The promise has been partially fulfilled in the life of Abraham, but like the grave in which he was buried, it points toward a greater fulfillment that is still yet to come. You see, God's plan was to bring about a seed, a singular offspring through whom the nations of the earth would be blessed. Don't miss this language here. Notice again in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 11, after the death of Abraham, look at what it says, God blessed his son Isaac. The blessing is now being transferred from Abraham to his son Isaac, and ultimately it's pointing towards a future son through whom all the world will be blessed. There is, you can never forget when you read through the Bible, and especially when you start in Genesis, there is an unfolding story, a plan of redemption that is being worked out. And this plan was established by God in eternity past. We see here that God is sovereign. He's orchestrating history to accomplish his plan. Isaac, notice this in verse 5, is the only legitimate heir. In other words, Moses and Abraham are, are making it clear. Listen, the, though Abraham has many children at this point, the promise will come only through one of his children, and that child is going to be 
Isaac. And so we read in verse 5 that Abraham gives his inheritance, that's the image here, all that he has, the inheritance to Isaac. But he gives gifts to all of his other children, and notice that he sends them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. Sent to the east, listen, not as a punishment, but to signify that Isaac is the promised child through whom all these blessings will eventually come. You say, well, what about the, the spiritual destiny of these departed children? Well, what about them? It's, it's interesting. Is, is there a spiritual hope for them as, as, and their offspring? What about all the nations of the world? Uh, commentator Derek Kidner, he explains it like this. He says, in God's plan, these sons were sent away that there might be a true home in the end to return to. In fact, their descendants' return was actually predetermined and prophesied by God in the Old Testament. If, if you just jot this down, we won't turn there, but if you went to Isaiah chapter 60, verses 6 and 7, three of the names of the sons here that are spoken of will actually return, it says. They'll see the glory of God, and in pursuit of the glory of God, they come, and guess what they bring bearing with them? It says they come from the east, pushed on by the glory of God, bringing frankincense and myrrh. And really what this is reminding us of is that God's salvation, his plan of redemption, is indeed for the nations. It's not just for the Jewish people. God had always planned to reach the world, all the nations of the earth, with the good news of salvation. So here we see God is accomplishing this predetermined plan to bring the Savior of God into the world. This side of the cross, we we know this, according to Galatians 3.29, that all who trust in Christ actually become Abraham's spiritual offspring and heirs of the promise. So why, why does this matter exactly? Well, God's sovereignty is a massive topic throughout all of the Bible, and if you read through the New Testament, you can't get away from the emphasis that the New Testament writers in particular place on the sovereignty of God in the life of the believer. In terms of God predetermining you, God thinking of you, God planning you, I mean, just think of Romans 8, speaks so frequently of of the predetermined plan of God and reminds us of how valuable it is for the believer. Remember the context of Romans 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's a sense of security and hope in knowing that no matter what you face in this life, if you are held by God, if God has thought of you, predetermined you, and has a plan for your salvation, there's nothing that you can't face without confidence and courage in this life. Or think about Acts chapter 4, which actually talks about the, the most chaotic, the most humanly devastating situation possibly possible to imagine that is sin Sinful human beings are trying to put to death and crucify the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ himself. And Paul will say this, that it all happened according to the predetermined plan of God. Every detail, every moment. And I just think that as a broad principle, listen, when it looks like things are out of control, maybe, maybe in the world, when another war breaks out, 
Or maybe when it looks like things are out of control in your life, when a diagnosis comes back and it's grim, when finances are low, when pain is real, in the face of both life and death, the Bible wants us to know that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. It is intended to bring comfort in the chaos. It's a well in the wilderness. And remember, the people of God receiving this for the first time were people who were wandering in the wilderness, wondering if the circumstances were going to lead to their destruction and demise. And God's saying, don't worry, I'm with you, I've got you. I've planned all of this out. I love Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He says this, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about blessings that come from Abraham, the promise made to him, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Listen, I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know, listen, if you're a Christian here, I don't know how, how life is hitting you. I don't know the challenges that you're up against, the pain maybe that you're going through in your life, but I know this, that God is sovereign over it all. He will hold you fast. And he's not just sovereign over every area of your life. Yes, his sovereign grace is evident, I trust. You can see it. I trust you see that he has predestined you, but I want you to see this secondly. Give thanks for his creating grace. God made you. He anchors them in his sovereignty, his, his children that is, and then we move into verse 19, and we begin to kind of move into maybe the, the heart of this passage where we see the creating power of God. Look at what it says in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padamaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. You can stop there. We're reminded here that Rebekah is barren. There's so many parallels with the life of his father Abraham and his mother Sarah. But, but you notice here that he had been married for quite some time. That's what we're, we're, we're seeing here. And yet they had been unable to conceive. Rebecca is just, it's just not happening. And, you know, it is a blessing to have children, like we saw in the, the parent-child dedication. We celebrate that. We recognize that children, as, as hard as this is often to see sometimes, are indeed a blessing from the Lord. Amen, parents? We need to be reminded of that. 
But oftentimes, you know, you'll, you'll hear parents say something like this at the birth of a new child, like, every birth is a miracle. False. Every, listen, every child is a blessing and a gift from God, but not every child is a, a miracle. In fact, the process of procreation is the most natural thing that humans know how to do. It is wired, hardwired into humanity. It is part of what God has created and designed as good and right and natural. A miracle is by definition something that is supernatural. And here, what we we are supposed to see is that the natural process is broken. In other words, the human means of producing children, that's, that's key to this story, the human means to producing children is broken. It can't happen. Humanly speaking, they cannot produce the child of promise that God has told them to expect. And so by definition, something miraculous has to take place, something supernatural. Why? Why is this so important? Because God wants to make it clear that his story of redemption is not going to rest upon the power of man, but upon his power alone. We see this throughout the scriptures. God is trying to make it abundantly clear that this is the way he works. If it is not for the supernatural intervention of God, there would be massive problems forever and ever for all humanity. You might say that the conception of these twins in the womb of Rebecca, that this happened ex nihilo, out of nothing. And you see, the people of God were supposed to look back at this story as they were going through life and they faced trouble and problems. Maybe they were wandering through the wilderness or they were in exile even for their own sin. When everything looked bleak, when everything looked hopeless, when everything looked humanly impossible, they're supposed to look back at their origin story, their family history and say this, listen, our very existence is a miracle of God. We owe our existence to his power, to his mercy, to his creating grace alone. He took something that was nothing and he created something. In Romans 8, it says those he predestined, he also called. And I want you to think the imagery there of calling forth. Like like Jesus standing before the tomb of, of Lazarus who'd been dead for over three days and calls forth out of the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. And out walks this man who had been dead. John 1.13 says that we were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if you're, here, if you're here today and you're a Christian, listen, your new birth, your spiritual life, it's a miracle on par with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a miracle on par with the birth of Jacob. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were as dead as Rebecca's womb, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you brought you back to life. That's the gospel. He made you alive. Everyone who truly belongs to Christ is a miracle of supernatural creating grace. 
your, listen, your new birth, because this is the language that's used by Jesus in John 3 when he's speaking to Nicodemus. Remember, he's explaining to Nicodemus that the natural process isn't going to work. You can't be saved because of your, your physical lineage, your ethnic background, your heritage. It has nothing to do with that. You need a spiritual lineage. You must be, he says to Nicodemus, born again. And Nicodemus, he, he understands. He, he says, well, how, how is that possible? The only answer is, is this. Listen, it's possible because of the power of God. You say, what should this produce in us? If we, if we understand, listen, that our existence as the, the family of God, as the people of God, is owed only to God's creating grace, what should our response be? Well, I mean, fittingly, it should be thankfulness, right? We should be the most thankful people of all. We should be humble people. We should be obedient people because this means that if this is true, that God is the one who is ultimately responsible for giving us new life, it means this, that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It means that God determines how we ought to use our time. It means that God determines how we ought to use our bodies. It means that God establishes our identity. We do not define it or determine it for ourselves. And so maybe for you today, it's helpful for you just to simply, like, like God was helping the Israelites to do, the people of God in ancient times, it's helpful just to remember where you came from, to be thankful, to be humble, and to be obedient. But let's not miss the human responsibility that's actually here in this very passage, in these couple of verses. I want you to notice that Isaac he actually prays. It's been 20 years that his wife has been barren. And the, the, the sense here is that Isaac prayed. That there's, a, there's a passionate kind of emphasis to this prayer. It's the same word that Moses uses when he prays for God to stop the plagues. In other words, he looks at the barrenness of Sarah's womb as if it's like a plague of death. And he's pleading, and I can imagine that this is not just a one-time prayer. I imagine over 20 years, he's, he's praying all the time, God, you said, you said that we were going to be the people of promise. We have no children. And he's, he's looking around, and he's seeing, look at, look at my brother. He's got a nation, 12 princes springing forth from him. We've got me. And you know, what, you know what Moses is doing here? He is trying to set up a contrast here. He's, he's trying to show you, listen, that even though it seems that all the world seems to prosper, even though it feels like, you know, think Psalm 73. Man, wicked people, people who don't love God, they're prospering. They're just, they're, 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 they're making progress in their careers. They have things I don't have. They seem to be living the good life. Well, I'm here suffering. Well, things aren't, aren't going my way. Well, I'm here lacking. Well, I'm here needy. God's saying, listen, if you want to judge, if you want to judge my faithfulness by your circumstances, then you're going to miss out on all the blessings that you're supposed to be enjoying. Don't, don't get caught up looking at your circumstances. Trust the promise, right? My promises come by faith. I trust in me. 
And, and it would have been easy, it would have been easy, listen, for Isaac, here's part of what we're supposed to see, to repeat the sin of his father when it appeared that God wasn't being faithful to fulfill the promise. Remember what he did? Well, I guess we'll try with Hagar. Look what happened with that. Isaac, to his credit, he doesn't do that. You wanna know what he does? He stays faithful in dependence on God. How does he show dependence upon God? How does he show his faith in the promise of God? He becomes a man of intense prayer. He pleads with God, God, you have to bring life from the dead. You need to do this, God. God, it's out of our hands, it's out of our control, but it's not out of your hands, it's not out of your control. You can do it, God. And I would just, I just maybe suggest to you that from this text we can learn so much. Listen, we believe in the promise of God. We believe that God, listen, is going to build. Jesus said this, right? We believe this promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? We believe that with all of our hearts. And yet you want to know what else we believe? God wants to use us to advance the mission of the gospel. He's not doing it apart from us. He's doing it with us and through us. So how is he doing that? I would suggest to you that one of the greatest ministries of the people of God is the ministry of prayer. That if you, listen, you're like, I want God to save people. We believe that. We believe the Great Commission. We believe God's sending us out into the world. God's like, do you believe it? Okay, get on your knees. Get on your knees and start praying. Listen, I would say to you, listen, if, if you think God's gonna save the people in your life, your, your, the loved ones or your neighbors, just because you know, you're thinking about them or just because even you have a conversation with them, I, I would say you're missing the most vital piece and that's the piece of prayer. And my encouragement to you today, listen, as you think about God's grace in your life, I wanna encourage you to think about how you could be praying that God would demonstrate the power of his grace in the lives of those around you. Praying, praying that God will bring life from the dead. We will not see God save those we love without prayer. I'm convinced of that. Don't think that as a a church we're going to be effective in reaching the lost without a a deep devotion to prayer. That's why we do, by the way, things like praise and prayer nights. That's why we, we saturate our small groups in prayer. We believe that prayer is vital to the success of the mission. If we're not praying in dependence upon God, everything, listen, everything we're doing is worthless. We're relying on our strength. We're relying on human wisdom. We're relying on a power that can never do what we want it to do. So as you're giving thanks to God for his creating grace in your life, again, let me just urge you, pray for God's creating grace to bring forth new life in others. Next, give thanks for electing grace. God chose you. This is exactly what is being emphasized in this passage, believe it or not. In fact, as she conceives, verse 22 tells us that something unique happens inside her womb. It says the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, 
Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Rebekah, she, she conceives twins that the Lord answers the prayer. And you'll notice we get some descriptions about these children. Now, the first one is uh, red. Um, not like a, um, a red-headed Irishman or like a red-headed worship leader. Um, <laughs> Think, think, think like a ruddy complexion. The, the, the word for red is, the, is where the name Esau comes. There's a lot of play on words going on here in the original language. So the word Esau means red, and the word Edom, which the Edomites come out of Esau, uh, is, is the same kind of base word for red, and they're known for coming from a, a land that, that had red dirt, like rustic-looking dirt. And so, so in the mind of the Israelite, all these things are, are like, yeah, we know these people. We, we know where they came from. We see what's going on here. And, um, and, he, and he comes out very hairy. Don't you love that? You, you can imagine parents, right? You're giving birth. You know, your child comes out. The doctor passes you the child. And, you, and you know, most parents are like, oh, that baby is so adorable. And they're just like, here's a baby. <laughs> He's wearing a sweater. And, and, and Jacob, he comes out, and, and he's, he's smooth, he's different. There's kind of a, it, it's showing there's, there's a massive contrast between these two individuals. But he's, he's different. He, you know, Esau's a hunter. He's an outdoorsman. You know, he's the guy, he's the guy you find at Bass Pro Shop. And then you have Jacob, and he's, he's you know, a dweller of tents. He's at home sense, okay? He's... <laughs> But the idea is that they're very different kinds of individuals. I had another one I was going to give you, but I'll hold that back. No, I'm going to give it to you. So you got like, here's Esau, and, and he's watching National Geographic, and then, you know, you got Jacob, he's watching HGTV. <laughs> but the, the, listen, the point is this, that they're, they're two. Actually, the, the sense of Jacob, the dweller of tents, is more this idea. He's a bit more of a sensible kind of person. And, and there's something to him that we're going to see this fleshed out in the storyline, the nature of his character. He's sensible, but he's a little different. He's a little more crafty. And then you've got Esau. He's a little more rough around the edges. You know, he's, he's a different kind of figure, a different kind of character. And, and isn't it interesting that Jacob comes out grasping the heel? <laughs> Again, it's like the story. It's like it was written in Hollywood. But he comes out grasping the heel, and, and later we, we would under, we'll understand that this is actually, this name is going to signify something about his character and nature. He's going to be known as a bit of a, a trickster. Twice he's going to grab the, the heel, so to speak, of his brother and trip him up a little bit. You get the picture? And here they are, and, and from an early stage, something's going on, and, and so, so here, Rebecca goes to the Lord to inquire, what's happening? Because she feels something's wrong inside of her. You know, there, there's, there's, there's something significant going, it's not like, it's not like she, you know, the kind of feeling, the kind of kicking where, where she's like, Isaac, come on over here, and feel the, feel the boys, they're, they're kicking inside, I think we got a couple little soccer players. It's not like that, it's more like this, the sense of the, the word is like they're crushing each other. It's like there's a UFC match going on. Like somebody's giving them weapons in there. They're, they're literally like beating each other up in the womb. That's the, the sense. It's crazy. And, and, and the Lord explains what's going on. There's actually two nations in you. Like, try, like, like that'll never be said about any of us, right? 
two nations are coming from you. And there's going to be ongoing conflict. It, it was prophetic. So this story was in part to explain this lifelong conflict between these two brothers and the centuries-long conflict between the Edomites and the Israelites. And the brothers fighting is a bit of a pattern that develops in the book of Genesis, right? We've seen that already with Cain and Abel, and we're going to see that again. You can think of Joseph and his brothers. There's, there's something to this pattern that's going to keep rearing its ugly head, and the pattern helps us to expect the unexpected. To, to get the sense that God, God doesn't do things the human way. He's going to choose the younger, not the older. You see, the human way, the cultural custom would be to choose the older. The inheritance goes to the older. But God's going to choose the younger, the weaker. God doesn't do things the way we would do them. And more than anything, what this passage is showing us is God's election. It's answering this question, why do we exist? Why are we God's people? I don't know if you ever thought about that. Why am I even saved? Why am I sitting here today? Why am I a part of the group of people who is going to enjoy the presence of God for all eternity and give him praise and see his face and know his power in unusual ways? Why, why, why do I get that? And the answer that we're given here from this passage is, is, is really simple, okay? Here it is. I know. You've been asking this question, but you try to untie this theological knot. Here's the answer. Because God chose you. You're like, why? I don't know. I don't know. I know that you probably shouldn't have. And in fact, Paul unpacks this for us. The Apostle Paul, in Romans 9, 10 through 13, he actually, he exposits this passage because he wants us to see how significant it is. And the context of Romans is fascinating because remember, in the book of Romans, Paul is trying to crush everybody, Jew and Gentile. And in specifically in Romans chapter 9 through 11, he's trying to address this problem with the Jews. You think you're special or you think you're saved because of your ethnic heritage, because you're a Jew. And I'm trying to tell you, that's what he's saying, okay, that you're not. That's not it at all. And so here's what he, he does say in verse 10. It says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, look at here's the reason, okay? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. In other words, listen, again, part of this, what does that mean? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. If it's left to human means and human power, it will not happen. Here's what he says. Look, not because of works, he's talking about human works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, listen, I, I understand that this doctrine is not meant, listen, to, I, I, this is challenging. This is what I'm trying to say. It's a difficult doctrine. It's hard to understand. It's not the doctrine you want to bring up sitting around your Thanksgiving dinner table, okay? Unless you like a good fight. 
But, but this, this doctrine actually is not intended by God to create division. Did you know that? It's not intended to make you prideful or arrogant. It's intended actually to humble you and to make you thankful. So why did God choose you? Grace, that's why, grace. See, what, what exactly is grace? Grace is undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor. It's, it's, you could do nothing to get it. It's a free gift. It is given to you. It is received by you. It is not achieved by you. And that's, that's the answer that, that Paul is holding out to all of us. So well, maybe, maybe it's because some people are better than others, more worthy or deserving. Maybe it's because of their family pedigree. And Paul says, no, look, look at Isaac and then look at Ishmael because th- that could be one example. Maybe you get to this place where you're like, well, look, look, they're brothers from different mothers. So maybe one, one's got better pedigree than the other. And Paul's like, no, 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 okay. Well, well, let's just then take a look at Jacob and Esau. You can't get a more level playing for it. These guys are womb mates. From the very start, they, they start together. There's, there's you know, virtually no difference. Maybe that's why, maybe that's why he was chosen. Maybe, maybe he was more deserving. No, he wasn't better. Maybe because one was going to do better than the other. No, look, before they had done anything, either good or bad, why? So that the purposes of election might stand. So that God would be the one who would get all the credit and all the glory for only what he could do. The word of God succeeded in only one of these two brothers. Which one? The one that God singled out. The older is going to serve the younger. It's, it's again a reversal of what is normal and expected. Why? Because God's grace is not subject to our expectations. And it's not subject to our cultural conventions. God's electing grace comes down to one thing and one thing only. It comes down to him, his power, his will, his love, his mercy, his choice, his grace. And this is not, listen, this is not to say we reject human responsibility. We, we understand there is tension here in the scriptures that we don't want to alleviate, We can't forget that Esau, and in a moment we're going to see this, Esau actually rejected his birthright for worldliness. He chose to reject God. God's sovereignty does not mitigate human responsibility. And when God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, we we often have the wrong understanding of the phrase like this. We think, oh my goodness, how could God love? We think of this as, as an emotional feeling when actually it needs to be read not as an emotion but an action. It could actually be better read like this. Jacob I chose, Esau I did not. We, we use love in a very, very different way, right? It, it's... We, it's very emotional for us, but, but we also understand that sometimes it's, it's an action, it's a choice. So if I go today, if I told you today on Thanksgiving, you know, weekend, that I love turkey and I hate ham, I, like, what I'm saying to you is this, it's, it's, I don't have like, it's not like ham's ever done anything to me to make me hate it. It's not like that. It's not like, I, I'm just saying to you, if both of them were before me, I'd eat both, but if you could say, choose one, I'd choose turkey every time. If you wrapped it in bacon, Okay? Better. But my, my point is, is simply this. God is, is choosing one and not the other. And his quote-unquote hatred of Esau is actually best understood, listen, as simply this, as God not intervening but leaving Esau to his own destructive devices. 
You see, Paul's point in the book of Romans is that salvation is entirely a work of God's grace. He owes us nothing. We are all guilty. There's nobody who's morally neutral. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no not one. No one's done good. Nobody, nobody, everybody. Listen, so if you're, you're like, you're wrestling, why, why doesn't God save other people? Why, this isn't fair. We say this all the time around here. But listen, what Paul is saying is you don't want what's fair. If you got what's fair, you get God's judgment. That's, that's fair. Instead, if, if, if you're saved by the mercy and grace of God, you have been given the gift of all gifts. And that ought to provoke in your heart great thankfulness. A woman once said to Charles Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. And Jacob, you'll see in the story, he's not a lovable guy. So listen, every time you don't get what you want, remember you haven't gotten what you deserve. See that you've been given grace. And give thanks. And finally, give thanks for redeeming grace. God saves you. The story here concludes in a shocking way. It says, once... When Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. There is theological tension here between, again, divine sovereignty and human responsibility And I want you to see that there's no human hero in this story uh, from top to bottom. I mean, everybody is kind of a bit of a mess. You you got uh, Isaac and Rebecca, I I don't recommend this, playing favorites with their children. I don't think that set them up for great success, right? So they each choose one. Like, if you sit down as a couple and say, okay, uh, you got that one, I got this one. I I would say the best way to make that decision is always choose the one who brings you more meat, but the it's, ne- it's never going to go well. They're actually not being held up as, as virtuous in this situation. And, and then secondly, we look at both Jacob and Esau here, and both of these guys are an absolute mess. There's nothing redeeming in this situation, which reminds us that it is left for God to redeem. Esau is faulted here for despising his birthright. He he is faithless. That's the picture here. He has no faith in the promise of God. He looks at the promises of God and he says, I don't care about that. I don't care a lick about that. In fact, look at what Hebrews 12 says, commenting on this, this very section of Scripture. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is for you and for me, church. I don't, maybe you're here today and you're like, you're on the fence with Christianity. Maybe you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You've, had, you've, been, you've, you've been Christian influenced. You've, you've been to church. You know the gospel, but you're, you're sitting on the fence of what the world is offering to you and what God is calling to you. 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. There, there is a choice here, okay? And notice what, what can prevent you from obtaining the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled of bitterness, anger, hostility, frustration with God and with others. It becomes this massive obstacle from actually embracing the grace of God. But it's more than that that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So Esau is being, being depicted as this unholy individual who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau's choice is a devastating choice, and I just want to give you three quick warnings as we look at this section really quickly here. First is this, don't be like Esau. Don't settle for the lesser pleasures of sin. Esau's short-sighted. He's living for immediate gratification here. He didn't want to hear about uh, what he could gain later. He didn't want to be reminded about what God held out to him for his future. He was hungry for what he wanted now. And I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Sin makes us stupid. Sin makes us stupid. It's irrational. It makes us do the most insane things. And here he sells his birthright for a single meal. He gives up his entire future for one messy bowl of lentil stew. The stew satisfies for sure in the moment, but when his strength is regrained, believe me, he will regret regret this trade. He will weep later over what he lost, over his inheritance that has now gone to his brother. He will cry tears of remorse because of what he had given up. All sin seems satisfying in the moment. Here the hunter has become the hunted. And I would just add that we are most susceptible to sin in our weakest moments. He comes in exhausted, hungry. In the end, the temporary satisfaction of sin, listen, it's not worth the suffering that it produces. And it's so easy to see this foolishness in others, but fail to see it in our own lives, to trade our soul for a pot of stew. Don't let sin make you stupid. Secondly, don't be controlled by your sinful desires. Again, notice that he's tired, he's hungry. Esau's being depicted in this. The the language is fascinating in the original. He's being depicted as an animal. Enslaved to its desires. So if sin makes you stupid, look at your sinful desires make you dumb. And he's, he's become this dumb oaf of an animal. That's the picture here. He, he's coming in, and he's, he's you know, the, the words are repetitive. He's looking at the stew, and it's red. That's the word. He, he, Give me some of that red, red. It's like, me, me, big, dumb oaf. This guy, he's like this, this Neanderthal. Seriously, that's kind of the way you're supposed to read this. And he's, he's become this kind of baser animal. He's dumbed himself down. And he's, and look, like, this is so ridiculous. It's like, it's like, you know, we've all seen this, right? You've, you've done this. If, if, I know you, hard to admit it now, hard to remember. Your kids do it, right? They come in like, I'm starving to death. I haven't eaten in like a minute. <laughs> this is not, not true. He's fine. He's hungry. 
Desires make us dumb. And the picture here, listen, is that he was not made nobler by satisfying these desires. He's actually made lower. The great hunter has become the hunted. He's like a mouse after cheese, and the trap has just snapped shut. Satisfying all your earthly desires doesn't make you more human, but less. The stew of sin doesn't leave you full. It leaves you empty. And our, our world, listen, our world really pushes this idea, especially right now. Like if our world says that you are what you feel, you are your desires, your desires are the most important thing about you because your desires really are, are, are attached to your identity. You are your desires. And so our world will simply say, you are what you feel, you are what you desire, your identity is found there. So if you feel like a, you know, if you feel like a different gender, then you are that. If you feel like a set of sexual desires, you should act on those because that's who you are at the core of your being. And so to deny people fulfillment of those desires, according to many in our world, is not simply to deny them happiness, but to deny their very identity. You see what they've done? They've made their desires the very essence of who they are. And, and listen, whatever makes you happy is the trap. That, that, that language, that's Satan. Whatever makes you happy, just do it. Whatever, whatever you feel like, just you do you. You be, you be whoever you want to be. Whatever makes you happy. Listen, hedonism is the great enemy of true happiness. Your happiness will never be found in fulfilling your sinful desires. Maybe the momentary taste of it will be there, but it will leave you empty and broken in the end. Esau is defined by his desires and he's deceived by them. Lastly and finally, don't love the world. This is the picture of Esau. In 1 John 2.15, it says, those who love the world and the things of the world, listen, the love of the Father is not in them. And the blessings here, the blessings were Esau's by birthright and he despised them. Those last words in this story are stunning. Stunning. He counted them as worth less. Worth less than a bowl of stew. That's, that's like you and me saying, listen, if you're, if you're in church, it's like you and me saying today, listen, Jesus, the blessing of Jesus is worth less in comparison to everything I can get from this world. It, Jesus is nothing compared to what I can get from the world. And so many people make this devastating trade. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? If you love the world more than you love Jesus, in the end, you will get neither. And if you love Jesus now more than you love the world, in the end, you'll get both. Don't love the world. Listen, church, let me appeal to you. Love Jesus, the one who loves you and gave himself for you. Maybe you're ready to make the trade. You're ready to trade your spiritual blessings for a meager bowl of sin stew. Maybe you've got one foot out, one foot in Christianity and the faith. Maybe you've been playing a game, dabbling in sin. You're ready to trade in the blessings maybe of your marriage. Sin is crouching at the door. I don't know where some of you are at, but maybe you're just right on the verge of destroying your life, destroying, you're ready to trade in your relationships, your relationship with your kids, your future relationships with them. You're ready to trade in your job because of a lack of integrity. Maybe you're on the edge of making a life-altering decision. Maybe you've already done it and you're like, is it too late for me? Is it too late to stop right now? Is it too late to receive grace? The answer is no, you don't have to be Esau.
Esau held on to his sin, God holds out grace. And Esau wept bitterly, and I want you to hear this, not in repentance. In fact, what Hebrews is saying is, is not that he couldn't, he couldn't get repent, to repentance, is he didn't want repentance. He, he wanted the rewards of God without repentance. He wanted the blessings, the inheritance, without actually grabbing a hold of God. He, he was remorseful for what he lost. He did not truly want to gain God and gain eternal treasure. Thanks be to God. You don't have to be like Esau today. You can choose repentance. Today, many will cling to their sin to the bitter end when they could have let go and clung to Christ in repentance and faith. But even today, the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Today, God holds out fresh grace to you, a sovereign, creating, electing, redeeming grace. And we know that because he has sent his one and only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I hope that grace makes you grateful today.